There's nothing in the world quite like Rodeo Drive. I'm Bronwyn Cosgrave. Hello, and welcome to Rodeo Drive, the podcast. Holston and Gucci, two legendary names which helped put Rodeo Drive on the map, are getting the big screen treatment from Ryan Murphy and Ridley Scott. We'll talk to the authors whose fashion books provided the material. It's an untold story about an amazing time in New York, about the fashion industry, about personalities, creativity, and also the terrible tragedy of how Halston passed away. This was a saga, a narrative that combined all the elements that you could imagine, the, the family, the fashion, the business, the jealousy, the fights. Hear from Stephen Gaines, author of Simply Holston, and Sarah Gay Forden about her book, The House of Gucci, a sensational story of murder, madness, glamour, and greed. You'll also discover how Rodeo Drive and its connection to Hollywood and the red carpet factors into these stories. Let's start there with Kathy Gohari. She's president of the Rodeo Drive Committee. Rodeo Drive, unlike many other luxury streets in the world, has something that no other place in the world has. And truly, these brands who came onto Rodeo Drive decades ago saw an incredible opportunity for their brand to use a relationship between their actual fashion brand with Hollywood, celebrities, award shows. Come on, this is LA, this is Hollywood, and it is Beverly Hills. You know, many times during award shows, you'd be surprised you're walking down or driving down the street and you see a lot of award show action happening on the street. No other street can say that. We have magnificent streets in Paris and Milan and Rome, but how many of them have award shows happening from Hollywood's biggest names? Mm. So you're saying it's the proximity to Hollywood, really? The palm trees? Absolutely. That was Kathy Gohari. She's president of the Rodeo Drive Committee. Stephen Gaines' biography of Roy Halston Froick charted the extraordinary life of the designer who became famously known as Halston. He was a small-town kid from Iowa who transformed American fashion pioneering a relaxed yet finely tailored style once described as dressy but never flashy. Halston's finery dominated the Oscars red carpet in the 1970s and sold like crazy at Giorgio Beverly Hills. Amidst it all, Halston became as famous as his movie star clients. He lit up the dance floor at the infamous New York disco Studio 54 and then lost everything even his name, to a corporate takeover. Holston tragically died from AIDS in 1991. A year later, Stephen Gaines' biography was published. Now it's the basis for the smash hit Netflix miniseries, Holston, starring Ewan McGregor. Getting the show made has been a long-running drama in itself. From his East Hampton home, Stephen Gaines told us the whole story. Stephen has written 13 books, including a thinly-veiled Roman Clef about Studio 54. That book laid the groundwork for Simply Halston. So we'll start from there. You know, a Roman Clef is French for a book of keys. 
And what it means is you're supposed to disguise the characters and their identities in some way, but tell a story that otherwise you wouldn't have been able to tell if you had used the real names. So I went to Studio 54 a great deal because I knew Steve Rubell. And um, I, I was there practically every night. And then at some point, I met a bartender at Studio 54, Robert John Cohn, and we talked. He told me all the secrets and all the great stories about Studio 54 and the customers. And I said, why don't we write a Ramana Clay, a novel about it? So the, the book came out, and there was a, one of the main characters was named Ellison. Sounds like Halston. And, of course, it was Halston. And it got into a huge amount of trouble. And um, Halston, Liza Minnelli, Bianca Jagger, and Steve Rubell announced about $20 million worth of lawsuits against me, saying that I had wow. used their real stories and, and names. And so uh, my name was Mud for a while. How did you cope with that pressure? Oh, gosh. It, it, I, I didn't. I didn't cope well because, you know, the, 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 now that then the paperback publisher didn't want to bring it out, there was a lot of money pressure on me at the time. And also I was banned from Studio 54. Many, many people were really, really angry with me. And um, I wound up leaving New York. But what happened was, is then 10 years later, I think it was, or almost, Vanity Fair asked me to write an article about Halston. And that's right. how I started to write about the real Halston. And I wanted badly to do it. Um, I wanted, in, in a way, an apology. I was sorry for uh, the kind of stuff that I wrote in the club. And I wanted to write the true story. As it turned out, the true story was even perhaps uglier at points than the fake book had been. Tell us about seeing Halston for the first time. Where were you? and how did you react? Well, it was on East 68th Street, and it was in his atelier, and he was having a party, a small cocktail party. And I was there. I don't know who took me there. I certainly wasn't invited myself. And he walked around the room, and he uh, introduced himself, and I introduced myself. He said, what do you do? And I said that I was a journalist and a writer. And he said, I have a bit of advice for you. And I said, what? He said, steal from yourself. I said, what does that mean? He said, go back, look at your work, find the best things of your work, the things that work the best and work well, and take that and use those things. And so at first I thought that's a lot of baloney. And then I really thought about it for a long while. I went back, I read my books. I saw the things that really worked in the book, some things that didn't. And it was a gift. Well, that's all he had to say to me, steal from yourself. Was it Halston the person that interested you or Halston the fashion icon or both? Originally it was Halston the person, but the more I began to write the book, the more I realized what his contribution was to American fashion and what an important mm. haute couturier, high fashion designer he had been and that he was really, as he wanted to be, American's Balenciaga. And I also mm -hmm. began to realize his great genius and how his vision was and how his clothing all had the same simple lines, the beautiful draping, the great fabrics. And so although I was not involved in the fashion industry at all, it, my appreciation of him as an artist 
really grew as I was writing the book. Mm -hmm. And of course, it was very hard. A lot of people close to Alston didn't want to give me any interviews. And then sometimes I said, look, I'm writing this book one way or the other. It's to your benefit as well as to my benefit uh, to speak to me because this book is going to come out. So eventually, mm -hmm. almost everybody spoke to me. Almost. Liza Minnelli right. did not speak to me. But Victor Hugo, Austin's lover and uh, antagonist, he spoke to me, but I had to give him $10,000. Wow. Victor Hugo is one of the breakout stars of the show. Can you tell us about that relationship between Halston and Victor Hugo? There have been so many theories since the show has come out. What was it about? Well, at first it was about sex, and then I think that they really loved each other. And then I think that uh, Victor knew that he was on to a good thing because for Victor it was really about money. But then there was, a, there was another dynamic in, in that relationship, which was that as grand and perfect as Halston was, he secretly kind of sexually enjoyed being humiliated. And, mm -hmm. and Victor humiliated him publicly. But uh, as it went on towards the end, when Halston got sick, Victor Hugo was just a monster. And, and mm -hmm. he just did awful, awful things. He would... Uh, uh, Halston was up in his bedroom, literally dying, and Victor Hugo was downstairs stealing the, the sterling silver candlesticks. So, and finally, uh, Halston's brother, Robert Froick, had the locks changed, and Victor was locked out. You know, one of the really illuminating things that's come out on screen is that Halston relied on a lot of people, like the great designers, Coco Chanel, relied on a circle of people to fuel her creativity. He relied on people to fuel his creativity, including Victor Hugo. Yes, I think Victor did push him to the edge of a cliff. I think Victor was, was very creative, and uh, he took over Halston's windows. Uh, he mm -hmm. did the window dressing on the East 68th Street Boutique. But of course, mm. if you read the book or see part of the movie, it, it, the things that he did in the window humiliated Halston. I mean, if Halston was trying to sell clothing, you know, he had one scene where a woman was giving birth uh, wearing Halston clothing. So, yes, he was created in sort of a crazy way. But Halston had his muses, uh, the Halstonettes, the beautiful models who followed him around. Uh, were definitely his muse. Um, Elsa Peretti was a very, very important person to affect uh, Halston's creativity. Um, and um, a bunch of other people. There was a woman named Dee Dee Ryan, who was a, a great fashionista who was not in the movie. And so uh -huh. all, all designers, I think, all artists, everybody has a muse. Uh, my muse as a writer is my monthly mortgage bill. I see my monthly mortgage bill and suddenly I get very, very creative. <laughs> Holston had a fantastic relationship with Rodeo Drive. Giorgio Beverly Hills sold his clothes. Holston's dresses were at the Academy Awards every year. Liza Minnelli, every, I think, every Academy Award appearance she made from the time onward, from her cabaret victory, she was wearing Holston. Can you talk to us about Holston's relationship with Rodeo Drive and Hollywood? Well, Rodeo Drive, obviously, 
uh, in Halston's mind, he would be synonymous with this incredible street, which was full of high fashion and expensive clothing and, and beautiful clothing. So the list of movie stars that wore his clothing to the Academy Awards alone, Angelica Houston, you mentioned Liza. I mean, there's so many others. Elizabeth Taylor, he could make gowns that just look perfect. And, you know, he went to California at the end. He, you know, he, he spent his last years or year driving up and down the coast of California. So Los Angeles was very special to him, but in his heart, he was a New Yorker. Mm. I think the great thing that I so loved about your book was your in-depth analysis of how he dressed Liza. And I think there are anecdotes in it, research in it, that when he was dressing her to go on tour, that he would put together a trunk with the instructions of not just the clothes, but how she should wear the clothes, how she should put them on, the, the shoe he made, the particular shoe he made for her to elevate her frame. It was almost like he was both designer and stylist and, as you say, like psychologist or psychiatrist. He was, exactly. And he did do that for her because he was afraid she'd wear the wrong top with the wrong bottom <laughs> or that the colors wouldn't match or that those weren't the right shoes. So what he did was he absolutely put a chart in and told her what to wear when and how to wear it. And of course she loved that. She loved that. He didn't do that for anybody else, but he, he adored her. He adored Liza Minnelli. And you know, Liza Minnelli spoke to Ewan McGregor before the series was made, before Halston was made, and uh, to talk about her relationship uh, with him. And, and uh, Ewan and the producers uh, promised Liza, that they would respect her relationship with Halston. And I think that the the movie absolutely shows that. It's very respectful towards Liza and her relationship with Halston. You are listening to Stephen Gaines, author of Simply Halston, the biography that inspired the Netflix series Halston. It was directed by Dan Menahan and produced by Ryan Murphy. Ryan Murphy has created numerous TV hits, including shows exploring fashion and the fashionable at the intersection of gay, transgender, and camp culture. Those shows include Pose, The Assassination of Johnny Versace, American Crime Story, The Politician, Hollywood, and now Halston. But the project sat in development purgatory for decades. Back to Stephen Gaines. Well, I mean, the book was optioned by Christine Bichon, who's a great producer and was one of the producers on the series. And then a whole bunch of people wanted to be Halston. Uh, first, they wanted uh, Rupert Everett. And Rupert didn't want to play any more gay roles, he said, ha-ha, because he went on to play many more. Then it was Brendan Fraser was going to be Halston. Then for a long time, Alec Baldwin was going to be Halston. That one took like four or five years off of it. It just went on and on of people saying they would do it and then not doing it. And then then it originally was going to be an art house movie, you know, like a two-hour movie, an hour and a half movie, a feature film. And it went through all these very different changes, very different scripts. But Christine Bichon and Dan Minahan, the director, they stuck with it for those 30 years. It really was something they wanted to see uh, done. And then suddenly Ryan Murphy appeared on the scene 
and waved his magic wand. And also he did a superb job, a superb job. In my role, by the way, in adaptation was to stay away. Mm. And then on the other hand, you have Christine Vachon, who is an indie film icon, uh, Still Alice, Velvet Goldmine, all of the Todd Haynes films she has produced. Carol, she works with Todd Haynes. She made that movie, Carol. And she was also one of the first advocates of, of uh, what they call queer cinema. And she always uh, did movies that had a lesbian or a gay character in it. And uh, mm-hmm. she is also unstoppable, unflappable. She's just like a train that is going ahead, going ahead and pushing ahead. And years ago, years ago, my agent said to me, keep this book with Christine. She's the one that'll get it done. And she did. And it was so entertaining. And, and you know, somebody called me, a reporter from the New York Times, and uh, said to me, how does it feel to contribute to something important? And I thought to myself, that's amazing that the New York Times uh, thinks that this is something important. And it is, in a way. It's an untold story about an amazing time in New York, about the fashion industry, about personalities, creativity, and also the terrible tragedy of how Halston passed away. A lot of people are saying this is great because it's showing a younger generation who this person was, people who would have just maybe seen Halston on QVC or a couple fashion lines that didn't work, really. Do you think for fashion, this is something that is really important right now? I was stunned to find out that people didn't know who Halston was. The entire fashion industry took a major turn. You know, for a while, only the manufacturer had their name on fashion. You very rarely saw a designer unless it was a famous fashion designer from Paris. And so Mm -hmm. uh, the 70s was the time when Calvin Klein put his name on Halston did and all those others. So it was very, very important because people began to buy clothing because they liked the designer and the style of the designer. And so that was one thing. And then also no other designer up until that point had become such a giant superstar as Halston was. And part of that was Liza Studio 54, that whole thing that was going on. And uh, of course, Halston was a genius in terms of design. Stephen Gaines is the author of Simply Halston, which has been adapted for the Netflix miniseries Halston. I'm Bronwyn Cosgrave, and this is Rodeo Drive, the podcast. Now, from sex, drugs, sequins, and disco, to murder, mayhem, and a Tom Ford takeover at a storied Florentine fashion house. Sarah Gay Forden chronicled all of this in her book, The House of Gucci, a sensational story of murder, madness, glamour, and greed. The Oscar-winning director, Ridley Scott, has adapted her account for an all-star retelling of the Gucci family's long-running feud and the murder of its head honcho, Maurizio Gucci. The murder was a hit ordered by Maurizio's wife, Patrizia, whom Lady Gaga will portray on screen. First, Sarah tells us about the light bulb moment that sparked her book. You know, I was covering the Italian luxury goods market from a business perspective. I had interviewed Maurizio Gucci 
Many times I had followed his passion to turn Gucci back into a top-of-the-line luxury brand. And I realized as events developed that this was a saga. This was a, um, a narrative that combined all the elements that you could imagine, the, the family, the fashion, the business, the jealousy, the fights. There was just a natural storyline here. Mm. So you were working at Women's Wear Daily. You got your book deal. What happened next? So I took a leave of absence. I, I really felt that this story deserved a deep dive. I interviewed family members and current and former employees. But while I was doing all of that work, uh, the story took off really under my feet. So I believe it was in June that uh, Prada started to uh, buy up shares in Gucci, and that was the kickoff of the takeover war between Arnaud and Pinot. So I covered all that live as it was happening. Hmm. And then the, the Patrizia's trial started, and that was about a three-month process, and I was in the courtroom every day. So it was really a, a very intensive reporting process even before it became a writing and editing process. You know, you and I have talked about this trial of Patrizia Gucci. Can you explain what it was for Italy? Well, first of all, the murder of Maurizio Gucci was a shocker to everyone. And there was no sense that a prominent businessman could be gunned down, you know, walking into the doorway of his office in broad daylight. That was not something that happened. And so so first and foremost, his, his murder was just out of the norm and very perplexing. And as, as we know now, it took them two years to actually figure out that it, it wasn't a business deal gone bad or a mafia thing or, you know, some other kind of financial crime. It was a crime of passion. But tell us how the trial played out in the media and to the country. Well, I mean, there was a huge um, focus on the trial. I mean, the, the Gucci trial was kind of like the OJ trial in the States. I mean, it was in the front pages every day, swarms of, of reporters and photographers and TV cameras. I mean, everybody was hanging on every word. Mm. And what was it like being in the courtroom? Well, it was fascinating also because you had, you know, not just one defendant, but four. So you had all these characters. You had Patricia in the room. Often her daughters or her mother would come. So there was the family. You had the different jealousies among the defendants. You know, you had Pina, the Maga Nera, who was the, the, you know, the black witch who had been Patricia's friend and a bit of a, of a sort of fortune teller, snorting when she didn't think Patricia was telling the truth. <laughs> And vice versa. Patricia was also not feeling well often. So there was a, like a nurse in the back who was prepared to give her an injection if she needed it. So there was a lot of drama in that courtroom. Mm. Another element which is unusual for, for American court watchers is that in Italy they have cages for the defendants. Mm. And so in this case, both the killer and the driver of the getaway car were in cages. So that also mm. heightened the tension in the courtroom. And tell us about the verdict. So the verdict, again, everybody was um, on pins and needles and tender hooks when the judge swept in. And in Italian trials, the sentence is read out at the same time as the verdict. So the judge came in and it was a very short verdict, but very powerful. And one of the sort of memorable phrases in that reasoning was he said, Maurizio Gucci was not 
killed for who he was. He died for what he had. You're listening to Sarah Gay Forden talk about her book upon which the upcoming film House of Gucci is based. I'm Bronwyn Cosgrave. Maurizio Gucci was gunned down a year and a half after selling his stock in Gucci for $170 million to a Bahrain-based investment fund. Gucci had come a long way since its founding as a leather goods company in Florence by Maurizio's industrious grandfather, Guccio Gucci. That was way back in 1921. You know, I think the story of Guccio is really uh, testimonial to kind of Italian creativity and the Italy that was, you know, rebuilding after the war. And, you know, he came from a very poor background, actually. I mean, later Aldo would weave the tales that, that Gucci was, you know, they were saddlers to nobility. But he was really, you know, his family had a straw hat making factory outside Florence. He got his ideas by being a, a bellboy or a busboy at the Savoy. We don't know exactly, but he, he was smart. He was entrepreneurial. He was clever. And he started to focus on the, the luggage that the rich, the European elite were traveling with. And he thought, ah, this is something that I can do. And that's how he started when he went back to Florence he started his workshop and he focused on quality products uh, that he could sell to the traveling elite. And, and that really became kind of the core of the Gucci brand. It was, it was leather working, it was the craftsmanship, and it was the quality. And it was also a family business. Can you tell us about Guccio's sons, particularly Aldo Gucci and Rodolfo Gucci? What were their contributions to the House of Gucci? Yeah, so the Italian saying is the first generation creates, the second generation expands, and the third generation destroys. Mm. And, and really, in the case of, of the Gucci saga, that, that was very true. They almost destroyed it, but uh, as we know, it's survived and revived and lived on. So of Guccio's children, the key sons for the business became Aldo and Rodolfo. He had a daughter, Grimalda, who ended up being written out of the inheritance. That's an interesting part of the book, yes. Yes. And Rodolfo was mostly in Milan. And Aldo was the charming, charismatic uh, marketing genius who really was the driver behind Gucci's expansion um, in his generation. And Rodolfo was the more austere, reserved gentleman, but he put a lot of energy into creating some of Gucci's most luxurious bags and, you know, the clasps. And he was the create, he was the force behind the creation of the Flora scarf, for example, mm -hmm. which is one of the Gucci icons, which he had made for uh, Grace Kelly, who at that point was Princess Grace of Monaco. You describe Aldo Gucci as a marketing genius in your book. Why? Well, he realized that, that a brand needed a story, and he realized that it needed um, sort of word-of-mouth communication to light the fire. And so he started coming up with these stories about how you know, Gucci's were saddlers to nobility, and um, he, he, he wanted to capture people's imagination with the brand. And he, you know, this was way before, you know, PR strategies and advertising campaigns. And, and, and yet he really had caught on to something. For example, you know, we're going to talk about Rodeo Drive. He understood he was one of the first 
to understand the power of having your bag or your scarf worn by a celebrity. How did he discover that? So, well, I mean, we see Isabella Rossellini, you know, wearing Gucci. Mm. We see uh, Frank Sinatra, you know, ordering Gucci loafers. We see Sammy Davis Jr. buying the exact same white leather Gucci couches that, that Aldo had put in the Gucci store in Rodeo Drive. So, so he, he caught that early. I would say he was, you know, one of the first to employ celebrity marketing. You're only as good as the customer you dress. I think Halston said that. Yes. How did Gucci attract an American customer? So it actually happened before they hit Fifth Avenue. Well, they were coming to Rome. So this was, uh, so, so the first expansion and there, there's a great story behind Aldo's, you know, conflict with his father over wanting to to expand the brand, but he managed to convince him and they opened the first store outside of Florence in Rome. And what he saw was that as the, as the war was ending, there were American servicemen mm. and, and women who were buying up things to take back home to their families. And so he thought, well, why do we have to wait for the Americans to come here? Why can't we go to them? And that was the impetus behind the, the New York store, which opened in 1953. Mm. Gucci was one of the first Italian brands to open a boutique on Fifth Avenue. How did Fifth Avenue lead Gucci to open a boutique on Rodeo Drive in 1968? So Aldo, in addition to being a marketing genius, he had that intuition for a good location. And he was the one who, before Rodeo Drive was, you know, even close to a shadow of what it is today, he identified it as a location with real potential. And it was his decision to open that store that actually really helped anchor Rodeo Drive as a magnet that then started attracting all the other brands. Was it pretty much about celebrity? Was that what he felt? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. I mean, the same idea, take Gucci to America, don't make them come here, take Gucci to the celebrities, and then you have your natural advertisements. Paint the scene of the original Gucci store on Rodeo Drive. Tell us what it was like. Well, you could just imagine. I mean, it was late 60s, early 70s. It was glass and bronze. There was the emerald green carpet. There was a loggia outside where like, the husbands could sit and you know, watch the girls go by while their wives were trying on clothes. I mean, it was kind of the epitome of the late 60s, early 70s. Mm. It was really cutting edge for its time. Mm. Generations of designers, Tom Ford, Frida Giannini, and now Alessandro Michele, have riffed on the work of Gucci o Gucci. Why? Well, really, as I said, I think earlier, he's the core of the brand. And his the tenets that he laid down have really been the most lasting. And I think... Even today, I mean, there's so many brands out there and they're all competing, you know, for your attention, for your dollars. And it's the brands that are the most authentic and have the the richest story, I think, that are going to be lasting. Sarah Gay Forden is the author of The House of Gucci, a sensational story of murder, madness, glamour and greed. Sarah covered the Italian fashion industry from Milan for more than 15 years. 
This was a time when the great labels which you see along Rodeo Drive, including Armani, Ferragamo, Prada, Versace, and Gucci, transformed from family-run operations into globally known luxury megabrands. You've been listening to Rodeo Drive, the podcast. I'm Bronwyn Cosgrave. On the next episode, we're going into the world of ultra-luxury watches. Find out why more women are wearing top-of-the-line timepieces. Women want watches that express who they are because they're buying for themselves. So I think the days of the man in your life buying the watch for you, I think those days are over. Rodeo Drive, the podcast, is presented by the Rodeo Drive Committee with the support of the city of Beverly Hills, the Heyman family, to Rodeo Drive, Geary's, and the Beverly Hills Conference and Visitors Bureau. Rodeo Drive, the podcast, is written by Francis Anderton with editing and audio production by Avishai Artsy. Brian Banks composed the theme music. Livia Manduel, Callie McConnell, and Scylla Jenya are the production coordinators. The executive producer is Lynn Winter. Please rate, review, and subscribe to Rodeo Drive, the podcast. Share it with your friends. Join us on Instagram at Rodeo Drive. See you on the street. 